Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, let's say a word of prayer and we'll dig in for this morning. Uh, Dear Lord and King, we just thank you uh, for your word, uh, for the teachings and the the fullness of your word, uh, that we can bury it deep in our hearts. And we just thank you for Paul and the way in which he took this time in a prison cell and redeemed it uh, for your eternal glory. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is uh, an experiment, a first-time experiment with going online uh, and doing a live streaming podcast. We've been doing a Bible study in White Bear Uh, Calvary Chapel style Bible study where we go through the chapter from the beginning to the end. We've been doing it for about a year and a half now. Um, But we have, with the coronavirus, found ourselves at home uh, with nothing to do. And I think we should redeem that time a lot like Paul did in a prison cell, uh, which is why we're going to start doing these podcasts or this series of live stream podcasts in the book of Ephesians, which is one of the four letters that, that Paul wrote from a prison cell. Uh, So he's in Rome. He's in Rome because of his beliefs, because people thought his beliefs were rabble-rousing, that they were inconsistent with how Paul should believe, according to what they thought, uh, and they threw him in a jail. Now, the Roman jail cell was a little different than what we might imagine in that he could have visitors, and people could bring him food and spend time with him, and he could write letters and send them out to the people he knew. Um, so we'll get started here with his greeting and the, the opening greeting of the book of Ephesians. Again, chapter one is where we're at. Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine you're hanging out at home and a messenger shows up and knocks on your door and you answer the door and you say, what, who is it? And they say, I have a letter from Paul. He's in jail in Rome and he wrote a letter to you. And you're one of the elders or the pastor in the church of Ephesus. And you're like, wow, that's great. Paul lived with you for three years. He's a brother. He's that first person who kind of taught you the word at the beginning. So he's even somebody who maybe brought you into the faith. So you have this dear place in your heart for Paul. And and it breaks your heart that he's in jail in Rome because people don't get out of jails in Rome. They end up getting killed or they end up... uh, um, spending the rest of the, living there until their old age at the Caesar's kind of uh, pleasure is what happens. When you get this letter, knowing that, you know, these are kind of Paul's last words, or they could be his last words to you, the last thing he wants to say. Um, and after those years of being with him, he's a brother, he's a friend, he's your pastor. Um, you get this letter and you crack open the seal on the letter. Um, and you, by the way, you also know that Paul's been writing a lot of letters. In fact, it's been rumored that he's been writing letters to those Corinthians. He wrote some letters to the Thessalonians. So, you know, this being the first letter he writes to Ephesus, maybe one of your thoughts is, oh my goodness, what is Paul writing us about? Because we're going to get corrected uh, by what Paul has to say. Most of his letters correct the church and tell them to do something differently. So there's maybe a little even anxiety as you crack the seal on this letter and, and opened it up. But When you open it, the first thing you read is this wonderful welcome, and then you're going to read the rest of this first chapter, um, and you start to read what is the summary of a Christian faith. 
a manifesto, a treatise, Paul's best of clips of when he describes the faith, he does it with the experience of somebody who's been in the ministry for years. That's what you see when you open up this letter. He's not correcting the Ephesians. He's sharing with them this glorious description of the Christian faith and what happens next, the depth of the Christian faith. For that reason, Ephesians is sometimes heralded as one of the, the master letters of Paul, his greatest achievement, uh, his greatest summary of the faith. Uh, and, and for that reason, we can dig into this and think, man, we're reading Paul's greatest hits at the end of his ministry. You know, he's in that jail in Rome. He's going to die there. Um, and he's going to write to the saints. Uh, the, to the saints, in my version, it says to the saints who are in Ephesus, some of the ancient texts or some of the first versions of this letter that we have don't have who are in Ephesus. It just says to the saints. Um, and in that sense, you see that the to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, it's a general letter, but Paul's entrusting that general letter to the Ephesians, which is quite an honor given how much he has to correct the Corinthians. Um, that he's doing that with that, in this case is just amazing. So it says grace and peace, grace to you and peace. This is typical of Paul. Uh, first comes the grace, then comes the peace. And we get to this redemption. Verses 3 through 14 in the Greek is one long sentence. And we would call that in our eighth grade English classrooms a run-on sentence. That's not what it's called here. It's called a um, manifesto or kind of a, a large statement that's going to get made. So here we are. Blessed be the God. I'm going to, by the way, read all of 3 through 14 so that you can hear how it was written uh, as we get started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. <clears throat> Verse 9, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the, dispensa in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also... In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you are also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, you have, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who, in the, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Sentence. This is like the opening salvo that would announce an event on television, right? This is kind of the, it says everything that we're all about, and it says it right up in the front of the letter. This is Paul packing everything into one sentence. This is a model for Paul that he's giving to people this gift of this, well, they didn't call it a 14 verse, they called it a one sentence. This is how to share your faith. 
This is what it's all about. And if you can memorize anything about your faith, this is a nice passage to kind of put in your head because it's a nutshell and it's easy to get excited about what's going on in these verses. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, Paul starts by blessing God. To whatever degree we as humans bless God, Paul just exudes this sense of where he's coming from after a lifetime in the ministry, all he's got is blessing for God. And it all starts with God and his son Jesus, right? That's the root and the foundation of the belief of all Christians. Or like at the beginning in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, right? That's the start. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's put the blessing where it belongs. And then it comes back, right? It's like a heave offering in Leviticus, right? Blessed be God, and then it comes right back. Who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As a believer, Paul not only blesses God, but he recognized that everything good in his life is coming straight from that very same God. Notice in both blessings, Christ becomes the mediator. Christ is the connector that brings us together. So blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. For both directions, Christ becomes our high priest, our connector, our mediator, and every spiritual blessing. Notice that us here is a collective. So who has blessed us is not who's blessed me. Paul says who's blessed us. That in the sense that every spiritual blessing is found in a fellowship. It's found in a community of believers. So we may to some degree all have blessings from Christ. We might not have the same ones, but when you look around a healthy spiritual body, you look around and you see every spiritual blessing, right? In Christ, he's gonna make sure that the saints are equipped with every spiritual blessing. So when you look around your fellowship, which is hard to do when we're doing this from home and we're isolated, um, we can see that those spiritual blessings are out there. In fellowship, we have the full package. God blesses us, and that's the means of how he blesses us. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In our Levitical study, which we do on Sunday nights, we're seeing how important this is. This is the plan of God, right? It's always been the plan of God from Genesis through Exodus, the Mosaic priesthood of Leviticus, the prophets warning Israel to get clean, right? Through Jesus Christ, it's always been the plan of God, right? That we should be holy despite the fact that we're terribly unclean. Again, that's part of our Leviticus study. We're terribly unclean. We're humans. We're born unclean. Everything that comes out of us outside the spirit is not holy, because we're selfish and we're born that way. So how can it happen that we should be holy and without blame before him? Well, it happens in love. And it happens because it's God's purpose that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Before he did anything, he wanted a holy people to spend eternity with him, right? So it's not just salvation that Paul's talking about, but the purpose is holiness. The point here is not just to get saved or say a prayer. The point here is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, right? He chose us. In the Greek, that he chose us phrase means he picked us or selected us from many. There's lots of people out there. He picked you 
And that's not an accident. God's not accidental and he's not random. And Paul's saying that to the Ephesians. Look, he chose us. He picked us. He selected us out of many intentionally. That's not necessarily a free will argument here, right? What's clear and the point I think Paul's trying to make is that he did it before the foundation of the world. This predates Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And in the beginning, God had this plan for redemption that would play out in a progressive revelation throughout history, right? This is an epic story that Paul's talking about. And this is part of how he shares his faith. God meant this from the beginning. And it's not an accident. The goal has always been to walk in the garden with him. And he chose that and he willed it and he planned it, right? Verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You know, one of the rules for slaves is if you wanted to enter a family to be adopted after a period of slavery, you could choose to stay with a family forever. And you would nail your ear to a doorpost as a sign of that in front of the whole community. And in doing that, the owner or the head of the household would do the nailing of your ear to permanently mix your blood with their doorpost, right? To enter into a family. And that was a powerful concept in the Hebrew world. Adoption in the Greek world and in the Roman world is even stronger. There were these Roman senators that weren't bearing heirs for some reason or another. And the senators wanted to ensure not only their legacy, because their legacy was their form of eternal life, but to have legacy without an heir, you had to adopt a champion. And rich Roman citizens and Roman senators would find these champion heroes from the battlefield and they would adopt them as their sons. And that word in that world and in that culture was, super, was powerful. The adoption meant you actually became a son. You were born again into that family. Very similar to kind of the doorpost idea. But in the Greek world, and I just love how God uses these different cultures through history to reveal his plan to us in ways that would have spoke powerfully within that culture. Because this concept of actually being born into the family, Romans kind of almost lied to themselves. When they adopted somebody, they would pretend that they were a birth child, right? Complete adoption, right? And if God predestined to do that with us by Jesus Christ and to bring him into his family because he has good will towards us despite our sin and meeting us when we were still lost in that sin, God's plan's amazing. By Jesus Christ to himself, Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became, in the, in the sense of the Jewish tradition, he was nailed to the doorpost of the world. And he inherits all of his father's holdings at that point. Further, he claims the right of high priest, right? He, he claims that as a sacrifice is given in the temple, he owns that sacrifice. And that's predestined. It's all planned that when we give our lives to God as a living sacrifice, Jesus Christ owns us. And we then become sons to a living God and daughters. We become part of that family. This is incredible by Jesus Christ to himself, right? He's, it, he, he plays multiple roles in this sense. Paul has to point this out to Greek people who might not know the Old Testament so well. We're adopted into God's family. Why? Because of God's good pleasure and his will. God loves us. God's not the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. He's not harsh. He's not petty, right? He's human, he, or he's not human like the Greeks and Romans gods. 
God himself is above and beyond humanity and his good pleasure towards humanity dominates his personality. This is very different than the petty human-like gods of the Romans and the Greeks. So Paul has to point this out to his listeners. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Our reaction to this situation is praise, that we just praise the glory, and the glory is his grace. The fact that he planned this before the foundation of the world and wants to adopt us as sons and daughters, praise the Lord. We're accepted, we're cleansed, a holy God brings an earthen vessel like us and purifies us, right? We get cleansed. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit if you look in, in verse 7. Paul says all of this, um, it's as though, and this is uh, Chrysostom, or Chrysostom says it like this, it's as if we were one, we were to take a leper and change him into a lovely youth. Now in Leviticus 13 and 14, the incurable disease of leprosy has a policy in chapter 14 for how to get cured. It only happens when Jesus cures a leper, right? Praise the glory of his grace that from the beginning, he has a plan to cure those that are sick and to take those that are in sin and make him come out of sin. Praise the glory of his grace. In verse 7, he goes right to redemption. In him, in Christ, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Right? That's why we praise God's grace. In him is Jesus, not ourselves. We don't get it because we're righteous or we're able right? Which is like almost every other religion in the world, where you do something that makes you pure. Not in Christianity, not in Judaism. We are not pure. It's in him that we have any hope of redemption. Redemption is to purchase or buy something. It has a strong connotation that we are purchased and bought. So what's the purchase price? Through his blood. Jesus' life is the price, the sacrifice that we can press into that we can rely on and push into because the, <laughs> that shadow my dog shaking the screen, because the ancient laws say that we can pass our sins into a sacrificial life. Thanks, shadow. The only eternal uh, sacrifice we can wipe away is the is 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 the the only eternal sacrifice that can wipe away our sins is the eternal nature of God. Every other sacrifice is temporary, right? And death is part of every other living being. So the only way that we could have a sacrifice that redeems our eternal souls is if we had an eternal sacrifice to do it. Well, Christ does that. He sheds his own blood as an eternal being to do that. The living water purifies everything. And Jesus Christ is living water in an earthen vessel, as he told the woman at the well. His riches, his grace, they afford us forgiveness. You know, I think about that and I just think, I'm all in. That's exactly what I want, right? That's my only hope. If I believe and understand that I'm human and as a human I am less than God and that God has a plan since the beginning of the world to redeem and purchase me, then yes, I want that. Please purchase me, Lord. Make me one of yours. Make me a son or make me a daughter in your kingdom. I just think that's such an amazing thought. Again, Paul's packing a ton of heavy stuff right into his first sentence. Verse 8, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed 
in himself. Because as a triune God, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He can make decisions in committee in himself. His will, his pleasure, his purpose in himself. Why abound grace to us sinners and lepers? Why would anyone do that? And verse 8, he made it to abound toward us. Why? Is that wise in any way to redeem a bunch of sinners? To God, it is, right? In all wisdom and prudence, God's wisdom and God's prudence, it is. And nine, that is made known to us the mystery of his will. Do we understand why it's a good idea to redeem sinners? Maybe, maybe not. It's a mystery, but it's his will. It's his idea to do this, not ours. Paul doesn't just hint at the length of the plan here. He's making it very clear that this plan of redemption has been there since the beginning, right? But now he's giving reason for it, and the reason is above us. It's his will. It's according to his good pleasure that he purposed in himself. So why would God create a world that even has sin? And part of that, I think that's a question that often gets put. Like, why would God purpose? Why would it be prudent to make a world where he knew that we would fall short of the glory of God? That we as beings wouldn't deserve it? Frankly, love, in part, oversees and overlooks all those faults and things. And God makes a path through Jesus Christ to get to him because he wants to be there. And here's another thought. If you're thinking of eternity as forever, and he purposed this at the beginning of eternity, even five, six, ten thousand years at the beginning of eternity is a blip in the history of forever, right? So we know the beginning point of forever for humanity. The end point we don't know. That's part of the mystery, right? Is that for the most of eternity, the vast majority of eternity will exist in holy relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Sin won't win. It's not the end of the story. And from God's perspective, that's wise and prudent. To be waiting might look patient to us, but from God's perspective, it's not. It's part of a plan that brings every individual into relationship to him because we know our nature, we know his nature, and we know his plan to get back into relationship with him. That's his purpose, right? Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This is where it's going. The word dispensation in verse 10 is oikonomia. It has every, when use this word, when Paul uses it in theological terms, it's kind of a first. He's, he's leveraging this term from what you would call oikonomia is the management of a household. It's the carrying out of a plan. So if I am a a manager of a business and we create a business plan and then we follow through on that business plan, we are dispensing the plan. It's God's business. It's his plan is what Paul's trying to make a point of here, right? That in the dispensation of the fullness of time goes right with the fact that this was his plan from the beginning and all the things we see happening, the the progressive revelation from Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant, the the no the Noahic covenant before that, the Mosaic covenant, the words of the prophets, and now Jesus Christ, we're seeing a fruition of a plan that's God's plan and God's business. His purpose or why he's doing that is to gather together, to unite or make one, right? 
we might be talking about the church. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, Paul talks about the Jew and the Gentile and bringing them together. We could be talking about all the believers around the world gathering together to become one church. What's a mystery here to the generations is that to know Christ further, we haven't seen the end of this yet. We haven't seen what that gathering together looks like in one, all things in Christ, that we all have a full revelation, a full knowledge of Christ. And frankly, Christ promised to come back. There's supposed to be a final battle and sin will be defeated, right? This is the end of the beginning of an eternal future, but we haven't seen that yet. So there is still some things where there's a mystery around that too, depending on how you kind of read this sentence. And you might gather together in one, all things in Christ, which hasn't quite happened yet, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him, right? So as God is gathering the church together, there's also an eternal gathering that's going to happen right here. So in the end, one way to think of this, God's the boss. He, he will gather. He will do it in Christ. He will do it with all things, and he'll do it in him again. You see the double use of in him? <laughs> In verse 11, again, if you don't get the idea, this is in him, this is of him, this is his will, God's running things. He's running it like a boss because it's his dispensation. It's his plan. It's how he's doing it, right? If you're worried, cast your cares on him. It's his plan. If you're anxious, don't worry for tomorrow. God's got a plan. Are you fearful? That's not a spirit of God. God's in control. It's all in him and of him and through him in Christ, right? Verse 11, in him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that we're redeemed with a price, then we're adopted, and listen to this, now we have an inheritance? And this isn't the inheritance from Aunt Ethel. This is the inheritance of an almighty God that we are in his family and viewed as his children. Inheritance goes to children, and because we've been redeemed and purchased with a price and adopted into the family, we get the inheritance of God. Boy, this just keeps getting better. Why would anyone not want to be part of this plan? If there is a God, and God indeed has a plan, and that plan has been, you know, witnessed by an entire nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and an entire Middle Eastern world with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If those things have happened, get yourself right with God, get into the inheritance, not out of a fear of God, though that can drive people to God too, and that's healthy. A fear of God is a good thing. But here's this purposeful work and counsel of God. Come into a relationship with God because you want the inheritance, and it's a good thing. God's been working for 5,000 years to dispense this plan, and he has counseled with himself, three and one, in order to do this sort of thing. The word counsel there, the counsel of his will, is like what managers or bosses do. Counsel's a dispensational kind of thing. He's using that same wording or imagery of people that gather and have a board meeting to make intentional planning to dispense. So where did the board meeting happen? Between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is counseled with himself, right? Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So first trusted in Christ, most people believe Paul's talking about Jewish folks there, that Jesus came because the Jewish nation was to give birth to a Messiah, 
and that's where the, the, the Messiah came from because he knew the Jews would document the whole thing, right? He knew the Jews would recognize the prof prophetic voice of the Old Testament to confirm that this was in fact Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of the world. So those who first trusted in Christ would have been thousands of Jewish people after the resurrection and a handful of people before the resurrection, right? And then in verse 13, he says, in him you, and he's writing to the Ephesians, so you here would be the Gentile believers, not the Jewish believers, that have also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Wow. So what's God gathering together here? Those who first trusted, those who have now trusted, the visible blessing of what was happening with these people, what verified that the Jew Gentile believers were coming along that were also now part of this family, right? Is that they trusted in God and there was a blessing in that. There were miracles happening and we see stories in the book of Acts and elsewhere through the New Testament that these things were confirmed by God helping to make miracles happen as a witness to the Holy Spirit moving amongst the Gentiles. Even the disciples had to wrestle with this idea that the Messiah wasn't just for the Jewish people. God's bringing together the planet, right? And then the Spirit sealed the idea too, right? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So those who came to believe and trusted in the Word had something happen in their lives, right? There was a blessing in their life. There were miracles happening around them. And then the Holy Spirit would come. That was not the church that made that happen. It wasn't Peter that made that happen. Paul didn't make it happen. It was the Holy Spirit that made it happen. And Peter and Paul and the others followed what the Holy Spirit was doing. Paul takes no credit for the bringing the Gentiles into the fold. The Jewish tendency, in fact, is to keep the unclean people out of the camp. Those that don't follow the rules shouldn't be part of the family. Paul's saying the opposite here, that according to God's good grace, He's adopting some more people in. And he's saying, praise the Lord, you Ephesians have been brought into this family. So God's doing all the gathering work here. Also notice how they, this kind of breaks down. Paul does this, this, again, this is a master work of Paul's writing, right? In him you also trusted. Step one, trust the Lord. After you heard the word of truth. So you study the word of God, you actually read the Bible. And Ephesians wasn't part of the Bible at the time. It was a letter. The Bible was the Old Testament right? Know and hear the word. Even the Gentiles are hearing the word of truth. The word of truth was also the gospel, the good news, right? You also heard the story of salvation from the disciples and the New Testament folks, right? So you heard the word of truth from the Old Testament and you heard the gospel of your salvation from, you know, verbal versions of the gospels and the epistles that are coming out. In whom having believed, then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise something called the Holy Spirit that changes their life, right? Some argue that these, th these things, trusting Jesus, hearing the word, the good news of salvation, sharing your story with people, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that they're progressive. Some people argue that they're essential to the Christian walk. Some people minimize that there's four elements here to a Christian walk. But it's clear to Paul, there are aspects to walking with Christ. You can't just read the Bible and think that that gets you saved. By itself, it's just a book, right? But if you trust Jesus, 
alone and you don't read the word and you don't share your story, the good news of the gospel of salvation, and you don't have any dealings with the Holy Spirit, don't think that just an intellectual belief is going to save you either. If all you do is share your story, but you're not rooted in the word and you really don't trust Jesus with your life, you're a false prophet. You're a false teacher. There's a mixing of things that Paul seems to advocate here that it's not just one thing. It's not just prayer. It's not just reading the word. All of them together create a walk in Christ. I want to point out another word in this, in, in verse 13. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Take a close peek at that. Again, Paul's bringing in an image or a word that to the Greeks would have meant one thing. And to us, we use that word partially because of our tradition reading this book, right? In Meyer's commentary, he points out that the Greeks used a sealing agent to seal letters from with warm wax. So when he says you were sealed, right, that has some connotations. A good seal or a proper seal would have used warm wax that's been softened by the flame and it's moldable. And then when it's moldable, moldable and soft, you take a stamp and you print into the wax, right? And what's on that seal is the image of whoever wrote that. So if the Caesar of Rome writes a letter, he's going to seal that letter with an image of Caesar on there. So when Paul says we're sealed, and he means it in a spiritual sense, he means we've been warmed by the flame, the Holy Spirit. We've been imprinted with something, right? And the image hardens with that print in it, and it proves the authorship of whoever wrote that letter and those that receive it. Likewise, we're sealed. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been pressed upon by the will of God so that we look like Christ. We are shaped like and we bear the image of Jesus Christ. We are clay in the potter's hands. And then we're made resolute in that. We harden in Christ. We become Christ-like. And like, like Jesus said to Peter, you're going to be the stone on which I build this church. Paul, Peter wasn't a stone at that point in time. He had some growing to do. But Jesus knows our futures that we're to be solidified in the image of our maker so that we can share our truth with other people. This is proof to anyone that meets us that we are God's authorship. Honestly and frankly, I just had a phone call with somebody and they said, Sean, every time you answer the phone, you're so cheerful. And I just laughed and I said, praise the Lord. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, prior to being written on by God, I'm not naturally a cheerful person. I'm naturally fairly quiet and even curmudgeonly as I try to work on things and I get crabby. But when I know people and when over time I'm softened by God's will, God's put a joy in my heart. And you know, to be honest, I am happy and I'm happy most of the time, but that's not because of my nature. It's not because of who I was when I was growing up. It's because over time, God has impressed upon me every reason to be joyful and happy, that it's all in his hands, right? We're guaranteed that. In fact, in the next verse, Paul says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, right? Wow. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. When that Spirit comes into our life, when we become shaped and molded by God, and suddenly the Holy Spirit can work with us to share our story with other people, to hear other people's stories, to love them, to care about them, to show our love for brothers and sisters in the church. We've been bought, and we give ourselves as adopted children to God, 
and we will be redeemed when Jesus returns to pick us up. How do we know that? Because we see the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And I got to tell you, it's harder and harder to see the Holy Spirit at work outside the church. We run to the church because that's our family and that's where the Holy Spirit works. But as our culture gets further and further away from God and God's word, suddenly that love and care and compassion, the place we see it becomes more and more the church. This is why the church thrives in nations and countries where it's outlawed, right? Is because then that the, there's a distinction between the holy people of God and how they behave with each other in the church and a culture that's just going to pot, right? The guarantee of our inheritance, what we have coming to us until the redemption of our purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Praise God. Boy, it's that, that's it. Folks, friends, that's it. That's the story. That's the simple, the deep, powerful, eternal, amazing story of God. You could just shut the letter right here and say, thanks for the letter, Paul. That's wonderful. How encouraging. You know, we're done. But Paul goes deeper than that. The rest of Ephesians is about our walk in Christ but our walks established on verses 3 through 14, right? So how do we see the Holy Spirit at work in our life? That's the part where I end verse 14 and I think, okay, what if I am walking with Christ as much as I can? I'm in the word, I'm in prayer, I'm in a fellowship of believers. I do worship when I can and let my soul sing to the Lord. I'm doing all these things, Lord, but when you say the Holy Spirit in your life is that imprint, that guarantee I don't know if every day I'm feeling the Holy Spirit. What does that look like and how do I do it? That's the rest of the book. But before we get into that, the rest of the book or chapter two, look at how Paul lead, or Paul's going to lead us off and he's going to pray. So I think like Paul, the first thing you do if you want to see that work of the Holy Spirit in your life is you start to pray for spiritual wisdom. And that's not the prayer of a new believer. You know, a new believer is often like, Lord, help me get beat my sin. Help me get this out of my life and that out of my life and replace it with your joy and your will. But there's a point in the walk of a believer when you are living as Christ would want you to live or doing the best you can at it, right? And at that point, suddenly the Lord starts to convict you that this is about your relationship with God, right? And as God shapes and molds you, the point of that is to walk with him in the garden. It's always been the point since the beginning of time. The point is that idea. And, and though God's purchased you, that redemption of the purchase hasn't happened yet. And we can praise the promise that it will happen, but it won't happen until Christ returns. So we trust in that verse 12, right? We trust that that's going to happen, that that promise will come true. And we're waiting for that inheritance that'll happen over time. So Paul starts to pray for spiritual wisdom. Verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, not just faith, but there's a love, there's an action that goes with it. Don't, do, not, do not cease. After I, heard, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That God, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Paul's thinking of, as a mature believer, he's sitting in a prison cell and he's saying, praise God for the Ephesians. Praise God for these Greeks that heard truth and believe it and they're waiting to be redeemed. Praise God for these people I lived with for 
five, three years, five years, however long he was with the Ephesians. Praise God for these people, these brothers and sisters. They're so such a blessing to me. The closest Paul ever came to being a pastor and not an evangelist was with the Ephesians, right? He settled down with them and worked side by side with them. And he's thinking, praise God for these people. Praise God for their faith. Praise God for how they love one another. Praise God for my family in Christ. Boy, if you're not part of a church where you think like that when you're away from them, find another church. Your church should be your family. That when you're apart and away from them, you get homesick. And you think, praise God for these people. They're amazing people. Be that kind of church to the people in, the, in, in, in your fellowship. Be the kind of people that would cause this reaction to happen. And Paul prays that God would give the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So even before Christ, Jesus returns, Paul's prayer is that they grow in knowledge of Jesus right now. Why wait? The words wisdom and revelation are an interesting combination. Again, in English, we kind of take these words for granted. But wisdom, Sophia to the Greeks, meant to understand things widely, right? Wisdom in that era with the Greeks meant knowing something about a thing, scientifically, poetically, theologically, logically, all the schools of the university that was budding and forming in the Greek society and in the Roman society, those things were all part of what wisdom meant. To be well wise was to be well-educated in all the different fields. So understand Jesus from every angle. Understand Jesus as best as you can through the scientific evidence, through the archaeology, through the poetry of it, right? There's a truth in Jesus that comes through biblical imagery. Understand Jesus theologically. Understand Jesus according to, I think, Levitical law, that he met legally every requirement of a sacrifice to be our atonement for sin and for our trespasses, right? He was our peace offering and creates a fellowship with God through the proper legal channels. Understand Jesus logically, right? Jesus often said when they would question him about things he said, he would say, don't you yet understand? Do you not understand what he's saying? That Jesus would speak in spiritual terms and in practical terms. That's the fullness of wisdom. Wisdom was a broad understanding of something. Revelation in the Greek, apocalypsis, was the opposite. It was a direct, unhindered understanding of something. To, to, to reveal, as we say it, is to be laid bare, naked. There's nothing in the way, nothing that obscures your understanding and your vision of something, right? Revelation was to uncover in the sense of learning and completely master a topic. May you grow, is Paul's prayer. May the Father of glory, because we don't get this ourselves, right? Jesus, the Father of glory, gives to us a broad understanding, wisdom. Gives it to us a direct and unobscured understanding, revelation. We don't see through a glass dimly. We see through it clearly, and we learn about Jesus both wide and deep. And this is even after we've been seen or we've been proved to ourselves that the Holy Spirit's active in our life, right? Go about the business of learning who your boss is, right? And I love this next phrase, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The word understanding there is, is used in a, in, a, in a kind of intellectual sense. Literally, the word means heart. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. 
That's interesting. Dave Gusick looks at this and he says, look, there's some Christians that have a heart with no eyes and there's some people that have eyes with no heart. But Paul wishes for both, right? This idea that we have the eyes of our understanding are being enlightened, the eyes of our heart, the things we see in the world are processed through what we believe in our heart. And what we believe in our heart affects what we see in the world. And that's enlightenment. It's easier to see things with the lights on than with the lights off. That's what it means to turn on the light and to see things. That you may know, going on with verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You know, why do we want our eyes opened and enlightened? So that we can know the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints. Inheritance is that thing we're going to take on. So why do we want to know all this? So that we have this understanding of what's coming. I love how John Piper started to talk about desire because we think desire is always sinful. But when we desire God, that's not sinful. And to desire God often comes with the human motivation of self-interest. Why do we desire God? Because there are riches of his glory of the inheritance of his saints. Why do we come into a relationship with God? Because there's an inheritance to be had. Think of the, the squabbling that humans do over a human inheritance, right? You got a rich uncle, you start warming up to him, making sure that he knows you're around because you want that financial inheritance. We should have that desire towards God, that there's an inheritance to be had by his children, right? That's what Paul is praying for his friends in Ephesus, his brothers and sisters, right? He's praying that they get broad, wise, and, 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 and clear understanding, revelation of him so that their hearts and eyes are seeing the same thing so they know the purpose, the end point of this, the hope of the future is an inheritance in Christ. Just think, meditate on this for a little bit. What does God have in store for your life? Do you see that clearly? Do you see and understand Christ enough to know that there's a plan in your life? Right? Do you know the hope of his calling? He's called you for a reason. Do you know why God has called you? What he's called you to do? Who has God called you to support and help? Who has God called you to exhort? Who's God called you to teach? Who's God called you to bless, to encourage, to give a word of spirit and life to somebody who's hurting and in pain, right? That's part of your inheritance, is that you don't just get saved so that you can be saved. You get saved, redeemed, and purchased by God so that you can inherit and be part of his plan for others. You give your life up and you give it to a God who's going to use it to save other people. What's your inheritance? right? That's the prayer Paul's got for his Ephesian friends. Don't just be loving the Lord. And in that, you know, intro sentence there, that's the faith. We get it. But I hope for you that you know the riches of the glory of inheritances. Don't just walk through life as a Christian doing everything the world would have you do. Set yourself apart. Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power. You want a second reason, second thing that he prays for? Not only that we see clearly what's coming, but we get a sense of God's power towards us who believe. 
If you pray for this thing in my name, I'll move mountains, Jesus says, right? There's a power to be had in a belief in Jesus Christ, right? The disciples went out in twos, training to kind of spread the word, and Jesus had them doing things. Miracles were happening, right? And a miracle isn't necessarily the proof of your relationship with God. It's God doing a work in other people's life through you. And that's a careful thing to know. We just don't go around doing miracles for show, but to see the power of God in us. The change in our heart is the first miracle we could, should see. We should look back on our life and go, wow, I'm a different human being than I was three years ago. I'm essentially changed from the inside. That's an absolute miracle of power towards us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, it's not our work that does these things. We don't figure out how to see miracles and make miracles and watch them happen. It's his mighty power that does it. And that's what God's pointing to. Or that's what Paul is pointing to, that God does this thing. It's the working of his mighty power. But he's praying for other believers to see that, that there's actual and real power in God and in a life in Christ. He wills the power and he does the power. And Paul wants us to see that, right? He wants us to see it in our own lives, verse 18. He wants to see that that's part of what we've inherited. We don't just inherit a theology. We don't just inherit a social club on Sunday mornings. We inherit power in our lives to overcome all things. The power to beat sin, the power to get fear out of the way, the power to take anxiety and throw it out the window. Not carelessly or recklessly, but in wisdom and in revelation. God's made a difference in our life. Has he made a difference in your life? Have you seen that power? Friend, that's what I want to pray for you too. Lord, may you show your power in their lives. May you show and reveal yourself to them. Verse 20. Which he worked in Christ. Again, which is, we're still in the same, you know, kind of sentence here again. He's got these long run on sentence. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Yeah, that kind of power too. The power of resurrection. So, yeah, it's nice that our heart's been changed and we've been revealed and renewed, but the power that Paul's talking about, the epic power, is that Christ was the first to raise him from the dead, right? And he's seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul wants us to see, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He wants us to see things like, a resurrected heart and a resurrected soul. But friends, it's more than that. Christ physically resurrected. There was no body in the tomb. Paul prays we can see that kind of power too. Paul saw that kind of power. Paul saw those things happening. I remember reading through the book of Acts when I first got believed and I'm like, wow, look at all the amazing things happening in the church. I want to see those things too. That heart of desire to see those kinds of things happen is part of what Paul prays for. We know they're real. We have a hope in Christ. We believe in his promises. We know God has power. I want to see those things happening. And throughout my life, you get to see those kinds of things. You get to see God answer prayer. I think that's amazing that a human being could pray for something and God would even care what we have to say, but he does. And he answers our prayer in powerful, amazing ways. Yeah, that kind of power. 
He opens our eyes. He gives us hearts that see. We're adopted. We're reborn. This is overload, Paul. This is too much in one chapter to absorb. If I were a good teacher, I would just do this one verse at a time and just absorb that singular idea. But he just keeps pounding it away, right? Verse 21, that power that we're talking about is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but that, in, that, in, that which is to come. Paul's still trying to get us to understand how big this power is. It was this plan started at the found before Genesis 1:1, before the foundation of the world. There was this plan that God is administering like a boss and getting through history and making it happen. That's the power we inherit. Principalities are government structures. Again, Paul's using uh, worldly images here, right? A principality is an area or a region, a county, a state, a nation right? But God's above all those counties and states and nations. His power is above every might and dominion, like McDonald's, right? He's above any sort of government authority. He's above any kind of other authority that's here on earth. He's even above that person that says you can't do something in the kingdom, right? He's above those that discourage you. He's about anyone that would have sort of petty power in small places, right? The gossip at work, right? The, the, the t- person that comes to t- town hall meetings and dominates the conversation. God's bigger than all that petty stuff. And he's bigger than the governor and he's bigger than the president. Thank God, right? He's bigger than anything this world would have to offer, not just now while we're alive, but in any age that's to come. It doesn't matter how big these governments get. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. God's bigger than that too. Thanks, Paul. Nothing like an understated opening to your letter. Verse 22, then he puts all things under his feet and he gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. This is what you read when that, per- when that messenger knocks on your door and brings in a letter and you break the seal from Paul and you open that letter and you see Paul reading, saying this to you. At first, you might think, whew, he's, not, he's at least not telling us we're doing something wrong, right? But folks, if a brother in Christ sent me a letter like this, I'd keep it. I'd keep it just for the good writing, just for the reminder that God is in charge, right? This is a treatise, an epic piece, right? Paul's at his best when he's writing about God's power and glory and grace through him, in him, of him, because it's all about Jesus, Nearly every sentence of the first chapter points us to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'd take a letter like this, I'd share it with my wife. Then I'd share it with my kids. Let me read this aloud to you. Heck, I'd share it to my friends. And I'd call them up and I'd say, I got to read you this letter I got from Paul. Oh my goodness, Paul is on, he's in prison and he's on fire, right? Because he's filled up. Because the power of Caesar has him locked away, but the power of God has him writing this. I want that kind of power in my life that overcomes the dominion of the Roman Empire. Oh my goodness. I'd bring this letter down to church on Sunday. I'd share it with my pastor. I'd, I'd point out, hey, pastor, this isn't just to you know me. Notice that at the beginning it says to all the saints, right? If you want, you, can, you should read this letter to the church because what an encouraging thing. 
Password say, yeah, that's pretty good, but I tell you what, I don't want to keep your original. Let's make some copies of this. We get people in the church handwriting little copies of this, getting better parchment, getting some things that would last a little longer. Hundreds of copies of this letter get made and shared amongst the Christian community in the first century. We'd make lots of copies. Then, because of the voice of God in this letter, the love of Jesus that's clear, and the description of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, it pours through every word that Paul writes. Paul had to finish writing this and think, thank you, God. This is just coming out so easy because he's been shaped and molded. That wax has been softened for so long that the imprint of God is on every word of this letter. And that's what happens. Historically, this letter gets shared in the church. It gets loved by the church. It's read when people get discouraged. It's a reminder that God is in charge of everything. He's the head, the champion, the, the thinking part, and the controlling part of everything in the church, which is his body. The church around the world, you're part of it. You're part of God's work on this earth through the Holy Spirit and in the fullness of him who fills all in all. Because every person in the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. The voice of Jesus Christ, a still small voice telling you what's clean, what's unclean, what's right, what's wrong. Follow that voice. You're part of the body. You exhibit his power. You get into situations you didn't plan where you can be used by God. That's the truth of it. And the hope that explodes off the first chapter of, Ephes of Ephesians. And this is just the introduction. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul. Thank you for your work in him and through him so that he could bless the church with this summary, this description of the Christian life. Lord, our Christian life is not just about believing you. It's about living in your presence and in your fellowship. Lord, it's about becoming sealed with your brand to be shaped and molded by you, to be changed by you, Praise God. Praise God, Lord, that you're in control, that this is your plan. I'm kind of glad, Lord, that you're bigger than me. I'm glad and excited, Lord, that you have a plan, that every promise you've made has been kept. I should have hope then that every promise you've made for the future will be kept, regardless of what's going on in the news, regardless of what's happening. You're on the throne, and you're in ultimate and total and complete control. Lord, thank you for choosing me before the beginning of time. Thank you for knitting me together in my mother's womb and knowing every hair on my head. Lord, thank you for knowing who I am and what I am and for shaping and molding me. Thank you for loving me in my sin. Lord, help me to see your Holy Spirit. Help me to see your power. Help me to be in my church and loving the people there, Lord, as you would love them, to be a voice of encouragement and joy and peace to be one who comes to the sick when they're sick, one that shares with those who have nothing, um, one, Lord, who can do your work when I see it. Give my heart and my eyes a, a consistent love that changes what I see and changes what I feel and help them to work together in power and in truth and in grace. Change me, teach me, and Lord, I just pray in all regards, Lord, you help me to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, there were three people in there. Oh, okay. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.